Welcome to episode 9 of the flagship podcast of Fansided's Call to the Pen. You can find this podcast as well as all the great content our contributors put out at calltothepen.com. I am your host and Fansided contributor, Jonathan Playtech. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices. As I always do whenever we meet, I hope to make this an enjoyable and fun experience. New episodes scheduled for Mondays and Wednesdays, weather permitting. We have a lot to get to today, Monday, September 4th. Happy Labor Day to all of you out there. Hope you, if you're taking a road trip or returning from a road trip, I wish you safe travels. And uh, to everybody having a great barbecue or a great party, please enjoy. Put on the podcast. Entertain your guests with mundane baseball thoughts uh, brought to you sometimes bi-weekly. And that means both uh, twice a week and every other week. I learned that. It's incredibly confusing, I know. But that's the way our language works sometimes. We have a lot to get to today. We will be talking about the AL MVP race. Who could win? Who should win? Is it possible? I'm going to ask you, is it possible, even reasonable, for a pitcher to win the Most Valuable Player Award? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to get to talking about the Marlins in trading Giancarlo Stanton. Sources are telling reporters that the new ownership group, led by Derek Jeter, is looking to cut salary already. They're saying, too much, too much. And I'll tell you just how much later on in the show. But should they do it? And should they do it? Well, it's their toy to play with, so of course they can decide whether to do it. But should they do it by trading away one of the league's best sluggers? And what could that look like? What would the team look like without Giancarlo Stanton? We're going to forego a scoreboard today. It's Labor Day. Uh, I got some stuff to get to today. My apologies for that. But we're going to jump right into the AL MVP race. Now, the AL is an interesting league. It really is. It it's not home to the league's best or to baseball's best team. It's not home to baseball's best division, but they do have the tightest wild card race in baseball, in which five teams, five teams are less than four games back of a wild card bid. Okay? Five teams are less than four games back. That means there are seven teams total that have a legitimate shot of having a playoff berth via the wild card. Because there are two teams that hold wild card bids right now and five more teams that are within four games, less than four games of that second spot. Seven teams total vying for two playoff spots. And given the dispersion of the various contenders, where they sit in respective leagues, it is possible that there are multiple win-or-go-home games at games 161 and 162. It's possible that games 161 and 162 for a few teams, possibly even earlier, are going to be win-or-go-home. You need to win this game to keep your playoff hopes alive. And given who plays whom, it's quite possible that it is... There are two teams who are playing each other who both have to win or go home because sometimes you get that. Sometimes it's, well, you know, the last year it was the, the Cubs and Cardinals in my neck of the woods. It was, well, the Cardinals are playing tonight. I, I believe it was uh, Sunday Night Baseball. And they said, well, the Cardinals are playing tonight. And 
they need to win. The Cubs lost, or the the, the wild card team lost, and the the Cardinals need to win in order to make the postseason, or they need to win tonight to keep their playoff hopes alive. And uh, I believe they they lost the game. The first game, there was like a three-game stretch where it was the first game was, well, okay, you can't lose this one, but now you got to win the rest of them. And then they won the next game in glorious fashion and then f- lost uh, game number three and was finally out of uh, mathematically ruled out of the wild card race. And sometimes you get that. Sometimes you you get team a team scoreboard watching in the clubhouse and having to beat a team that is already either a division leader or has wrapped up a wild card, the first wild card spot or is possibly not even in postseason contention. And so you get two teams vicariously playing against one another. But no, in the AL Towards the end of this season, it could very well be two t- two teams that are vying for the second wild card spot are playing each other in the final series or the the next to last series of the season. It's going to be great. It's going to be absolutely great. And and it's it that is not even considering the possibility of multiple outright ties for wild card spots. Resulting in a game 163, that's how that happens, and I looked it up and I, I tried to my best to figure out what the rules were, and the near as I can tell, here's how it breaks down. There will only be one game 163. There's only one game 163 to determine a wild card team in the event of a tie. In the event of a tie for the second wild card spot, there will only be one game 163. The, there are other increasingly odd tiebreakers like interleague, intra, interleague and intra-league record and record in the final 82 games of the season. Not even head-to-head record or anything like that. It is interleague, intra-league, and it's a cascading uh, hierarchy. And uh, I think one of the last ones is record in the final 82 games of the season. So MLB wants a team that's hot, foregoing everything else, the MLB wants the team that's hotter in the second half of the season, ostensibly hotter going into the playoffs, to get game 163 or get uh, get the chance to play for the second wildcard spot over the team that might be better, uh, let's say, in overall record or at least is tied in overall record regardless of talent. So there's only one game 163. Again, near as I can tell, could totally be wrong. But... The interesting, incredibly crazy tiebreakers happen to decide who gets to play game 163. So it's crazy. It's insane what could happen in the American League. And it's going to be, as we we are now September 4th, so it's going to be most teams wrap up their season by October 1st. And so it is going to be a very fun next couple of weeks. There's also... An incredibly interesting MVP race happening in the AL. Not many people know about it. Jose Altuve is making a serious bid, and for all intents and purposes, he's the odds-on favorite to win. He's the best player on the AL's top team, leading the league with a 6.6 fan graphs wins above replacement. That's FWAR. However, now again, that's the... Best player on best team theory of MVP award. And I know a lot of people ascribe to that theory. I know a lot of people like it. I myself 
find myself saying, well, you know, best player on the best team or or best player on a playoff contending team is a is a variant, a subset of that theory. The best player on a well, playoff contending team, you know, if you it's great if you're really really good, but you got to your team, your dominance probably should result in a few more on-field wins if you're going to be an MVP contender. To wit, Joey Votto. Joey Votto in the NL has serious numbers. Serious numbers. Like, legitimate MVP contender numbers. He's that good. That good in average. That good in OBP. That good in slugging. That good in ISO. That good in war. That good in games played. And that's even accounting for the fact that he is he actually gets hurt by wins above replacement calculations because he plays first base. And it's really, really hard to be a, to have those kinds of numbers and metrics give you extra points for being a really good defensive first baseman. It's pretty hard. And again, it depends on which war calculation is dependent on, you know, because uh, baseball reference war uses defensive runs saved and the fielding or uh, the fangraphs war uses ultimate zone rating or i believe now they've they've upgraded to ultimate zone rating per 150 last i checked so it depends on how the defensive calculations help you out but in terms of the positional adjustment Joey Votto is detracted for being a first baseman and he's right up there with the lights of of and there's a dark horse candidate Anthony Rendon doing big things and he's he gets helped out because I believe he primarily I think the the metrics have him they calculate him as a third baseman I want to say I have to check that out let's uh, let's find that out right now I believe third baseman right that's where they got him yeah it's second base third base let's see where did he play most of his most of his time this year is what has been spent oh it, no no. Let's see, 2017. Okay, stop showing me minor league. Sorry, apologize. Great pod, I know. All right, he's played, yeah, 125 games at third base this year, in 2017. And Anthony Rendon is leading the NL in war among qualified hitters. But that's the thing. Joey Votto is a guy where it's like, all right, Joey, you've got some great figures. You've got some great numbers. Like, eye-popping stuff, really. It's It's incredible. But your team's not winning a lot. And as much as I like to eschew the traditional mindset, because the best player on the best team approach is the, for lack of a better phrase, the traditional mindset. Not to denigrate anybody who thinks that. But as much as I like to cast off that and and even go against the grain and trailblaze, even I have to say, well... I feel kind of weird giving Joey Votto the most valuable player based simply on his OBP and wins above replacement because your team sucks. And it's great that you're really good, but there, as much as I don't like it, there is kind of a how-does-your-team-do-because-of-you component to valuable player. And that's the great thing about arguing most valuable player because there's that vagueness there that gives gives rise to so much great discussion, so much fun. But 
despite Altuve being the, the best player on his bet on the best team, there's another contender, another best player on one of the league's best teams. And this guy is dominant, dominant. And I think he warrants serious discussion. And that guy is Chris Sale. Chris Sale, in 2017, has warranted some serious damn discussion for an MVP award going to a pitcher. Consider this. Over 189 innings this season. Again, we're only through September 4th. Over 189 innings this season. Sale has notched a career high. These are career highs. Strikeout per nine rate, 12.8. Walks per nine inning rate, 1.7. And fielding independent pitching of 2.20. Those are all career highs for him. This is for this is a career year for Chris Sale. And a career high FWAR of 7.5. 7. Damn five. Wins above replacement. Sale leads all qualified AL starters in innings pitched, pitching wins, if you like that, strikeout weight, rate, walk rate, and fielding independent pitching. Those are five key statistical categories if you count pitching wins. Innings pitched, he's been durable. Pitching wins for people that like pitching wins. Strikeout rate, been dominating hitters. Walk rate, hasn't been losing to a lot of hitters. And fielding independent pitching. In the way that he can dominate a game, Chris Sale has been the most dominant in the AL. That's essentially what a fielding independent pitching describes. How good, what, what, are you, what is your stuff like? Never mind like how much your defense, how much, how much can you strike out pl- batters, limit walks, and limit home runs. That is your, those are your prime directives, like RoboCop. Those are your prime diref- directives as a starting pitcher, on top of not hurting an OCP executive. That's directive number four, but we don't talk about that one. He is second among qualified AL starters in XFIP, meaning he's been a little bit lucky, and ERA, behind only, in both categories, Cleveland's Corey Kluber. And my God, Corey Kluber. Dude, stop it. Dude, take it easy. On top of leading the league starters for far and away, far and away leading the league's qualifying starters with his 7.5 F4 mark. Jose Altuve is at 6.6, fielding independent, or uh, excuse me, Fangraphs wins above replacement. Chris Sale is at 7.5. That's, I mean, again, it is not the most wins above replacement award. I understand that. However, With Sale being so dominant. I mean, again, regardless of your thoughts of whether a pitcher can win the award or should win the award, it's not most valuable hitter. It's most valuable player. And you can argue till the cows come home about the presence of the Cy Young Award kind of implying that the MVP award should go to an offensive player. You know, you've got the Cy Young for pitchers and... The MVP award for hitters. If you want to make that argument, fine. 
It's like FCS and FBS, the football bowl series, and the football championship series. Everybody knows that one is Division 1A and one is Division 1 AA. I don't care what you call them. I don't care what kind of mealy mouth name you come up with that doesn't imply one is different or worse than the other. One is 1A and one is 1AA. So you can make the argument that, yeah, the MVP isn't overtly called the most valuable offensive player award, but the presence of the Cy Young Award implies that it should be blah, 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 da, 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 da. But barring that, barring that argument, I think it's open for a pitcher to win the MVP award. And in terms of dominance and in terms of league-adjusted, position-adjusted statistics, Chris Sale is a better player, is a more dominant and a more valuable player to his team than Jose Altuve. Say that right now. However, there's another contender for the award. This is how crazy the AL is. And this contender is one who, if you ascribe to the theory of best player on a playoff contender, if you ascribe to that theory of MVP awards, this guy should have your full attention. Mike Trout. Bam! Said it weeks ago! It's still true today. I'm going to cling to the takes that turn out to be not stupid, and conveniently forget about the ones that do. Despite having 170 fewer plate appearances than Jose Altuve, Trout has amassed a 6.2 field... Uh, excuse me, gosh, I'm, I'm still on fielding independent pitching mode. Fangraphs wins above replacement. F-War. 6.2 F-War. Remember, Altuve is at 6.6. And in 170 fewer plate appearances than Altuve, Trout has amassed a 6.2 F-War to Altuve 6.6. His 466 OBP, this is Trout's, his 466 OBP, 670 slugging, 336 ISO, 460 weighted on base average, and 197 weighted runs created plus all eclipse Altuve's marks in the same categories by a wide, wide margin. Again, we're talking about rate statistics, I know. And qualifying standards are in place to prevent these exact arguments. I know. But on top of Trout competing with Altuve for the FWAR title in the AL, despite appearing in 50 fewer games, 50 fewer games, he's still competing with them for the title, for the, the FWAR title belt. Trout's cumulative offensive runs above average. This is a counting metric, mind you. Trout's cumulative offensive runs above average total of 51.5 actually eclipses Altuve's total on the season. And Altuve's total among qualified batters is league leading of 48.1. Jose Altuve appearing in 131 games, I believe I saw earlier today. 131 games, he has an offensive runs above average of 48.1. Counting metric, cumulative total. And in 50 fewer games, Mike Trout has an offensive runs above average of 51.5. Trout's dominance in 50 fewer games is about equal to Altuve's dominance of the league all season long. Okay, because I'll grant you, Altuve still holds the wins above replacement league or lead. But with Trout holding the offensive runs above average lead, let's call it a wash and say they're about equal. About. 
Not the same, but approximate. And the Angels are able to call themselves playoff contenders in the AL in no small part due to Trout's ability. Since Trout's return in the second half of the season, that's when he came back after the All-Star break, the Angels have posted a winning percentage of 556 compared with their first half, played largely without Trout, winning percentage of 489. When he comes back, they're a better team. They've played as a better team in the second half, and that play in the second half has allowed them, the Angels, to be playoff contenders. So if you are a best player on a playoff contending team, theory kind of guy, you have to be discussing and considering Mike Trout because his do- he has been so dominant in such a short amount of time that we could see something that I'm not sure we've ever seen before. Here's this. The Angels have 25 games left this season. 25 games left. They wrap their uh, their 2017 on October 1st against another playoff hopeful, the Seattle Mariners. That's one of the series I talked about, where you could have wild card spot contending teams playing win-or-go-home games against one another in a series. Effectively, a playoff series before the possible Game 163 and wild card playoff game. Given where Trout is wins above replacement-wise, Right now, at 6.2, with 25 games left in the season, it is possible we could see a seven wins above replacement season out of a player who appeared in fewer than 120 games. Trout has appeared in just over 90 games this season. And with 27 games left, that means it is impossible for him to appear in more than 120 games. However, it is still possible for him to have a seven wins above replacement total season in 120 games. And quite possibly, eclipse the guy who has played a full healthy season, Jose Altuve. Playing a more, I'll say it, a more important defensive position, center field as opposed to second base. Both are playoff contenders. Obviously, the the Astros are shoe-ins for the postseason, but despite missing a large amount of time due to injury, Trout has hid his team in the in the thick of the playoff hunt, and there's there's little doubt that had Trout not missed that time, the Angels are legitimate playoff hopefuls. Perhaps not chasing, perhaps not chasing down the Astros. I'm not saying they'd be they'd be trading blows with the Astros for the AL West. I'm not saying that, but but there's no doubt in my mind that they'd be a lot better than trying, hoping to be in the mix in the last month of the season for the wild card. They'd probably be battling the Yankees for the first wild card position if Trout is healthy all season long given how dominant he has been in in this time. So it's up to you. Who do you like? What do you like to see? Do you like consistent, well-above-average play throughout the season for a playoff contending, for a playoff, for a World Series hopeful team? Then Jose Altuve is your guy. 
Do you like dominance in its purest form for a playoff contending team? Never mind whether they're whether they're World Series hopefuls, never mind whether they're shoe-ins for the postseason. Is it enough for you for the team to be in the hunt and then this guy is just absolutely dominating people? Then that's Mike Trout. And then if you like just, oh my God, I think we're watching one of the best seasons ever had by a pitcher for a playoff contending team, for a playoff hopeful, for a World Series hopeful, then Chris Sale is your guy. There's a lot of ways you can go in the AL. Really interesting wildcard race and a really, if you think about it, interesting MVP award race. All right. Got one more thing to get to before we uh, head on out of here and get you uh, get you going on your way, celebrating your Labor Day. Normally, this is something. This is where we'd be talking about something that's hot and happening on calltothepen.com. But it appears as though we're breaking a bit of news here on the podcast, and one of our great contributors has yet to get a column posted on this. So, uh, if this changes, I will append the post on calltothepen.com to include a link to that contributor's rundown. Uh, I checked, couldn't find anything, so it appears as though this is my little breaking news, which I like to do from time to time. But it appears that new incoming ownership of the Miami Marlins, led by former star Derek Jeter and champion of the morning after gift basket, they're looking to cut salary and get rid of that god-awful statue in center field. They're looking to do both. We're going to cut salary and get rid of whatever the hell that is in center field of our home ballpark. And while the city of Miami has forbade them from doing one of those things, let you guess which one it is, they seem hell-bent on doing the other. This is from Chris Quick of Yahoo Sports. Quote, Barry Jackson of the Herald has heard some specific figures from an investor, and they are not pretty. If MVP candidate Giancarlo Stanton is dealt, the team's payroll could drop as low as $55 million. If Stanton is retained, the team could go down from $115 million to somewhere between $80 million and $85 million. End quote. They're looking to cut salary, and it looks as though the new ownership group hasn't decided yet just what they're going to, going to do with Stanton. They haven't decided. He's the current favorite in the NL to take home an MVP award. And they are preparing for either occurrence, that being not moving Stanton, should he not waive his full no-trade protection, and finding ways to dump the salaries of players like Martin Prado, Edinson Volquez, and Wei-Yen Chen, and convincing Stanton he'd be happier slapping dingers somewhere else and reaping the prospect reward. So they've got two avenues to choose from. We can not trade Stanton, and we got to dump a whole bunch of salary somewhere else. Or we can trade Stanton, and then we will have a bevy of blue-chip prospects from which we can hopefully rebuild. Here's the problem, though. The Marlins have a lot of bad money on their books. I mean bad. This is... This is like Omer Osik poison pill deal bad. Like Omer Osik had like a $70 million contract for some reason. Who gave him that? Was that the Rockets? 
I believe the Bulls had him on their offer sheet, or he was a restricted free agent. And the Rockets offered him like a $70 million poison pill contract. And the Bulls had to just go, uh, yeah, no, buddy. See ya. Because we're not paying that. Like, that's where the Marlins are in terms of some of the contracts on their book on their books. They have already committed $97 million in 2018 to just eight players. Keep in mind, MLB rosters are set at 25. And there's a 40-man roster from which you can call throughout the season. But for 2018, they have eight players, eight major league players under salary for a total of $97 million. And in 2018, that salary figure, that total committed salary figure drops to only $86 million for just five players. And in that season, that will be the season 30-year, then 34-year-old Wei Yen Chen salary will only be about $4 million less than then 29-year-old Giancarlo Stanton's. That's what we're talking about. In 2018, Wei-Yen Chen will be 34 and making just $4 million less than Giancarlo Stanton. If the Marlins don't trade Stanton, who would be a salary dump uh, and farm system regeneration procedure all-in-one, like all-in-one, you salary dump when you trade Giancarlo Stanton because not a lot of teams are going to be like, well, I'm not absorbing all of this deal. No, that's what you pay Giancarlo Stanton. In fact, it's it's actually given his production, especially this season, it's below market value. Below market value for Stanton. Making $14.5 million this year, that's well below market value. Then in 2018, it jumps to 25. 2019, it jumps to 26. 26 again in 2020. And then a player option for uh, 2021 at $29 million. Again, if he keeps this production up, that's not that bad. That's not unheard of. I mean, we're on the precipice of Bryce Harper possibly making $40 million a season. So... Below market value for Stanton, you're not going to have to pay to make him go away. And in return, you can have a handful, you'll probably have a a dump truck full of blue chip prospects of a team of one organization's top, very top prospects. Like one through five, probably, is what you'll be able to get. But if they don't do that, Guys like Chen, Prado, and Volquez have got to go. They got to go because, oh, holy crap, we're going to be, we have more than $100 million still committed to Giancarlo Stanton over the next four years. We've got to get rid of these guys. The obvious problem being who is going to take those players at those salaries? Again, Martin Prado is making $11.5 million this year, $13.5 million next year, 2018, and $15 million. In 2019, Edinson Volquez is making $9 million this year and $13 million next year. D. Gordon is more palatable, 7.8, 10.8, 13.3, 13.8, then 14. That's not bad. But who's going to take on those players? Who's going to take on Prado and Volquez? Who's, nobody's going to take take on those deals without some kind of incentive. Chen is the most egregious. 
in terms of bad contract, in that not only does his salary double in two years to more than $22 million, but the next three years of his contract at salaries of $12.6, 22.6, and $24.6 million are all player options. And with Chen's recent performance, there's little reason for him to opt out and seek a better deal in free agency. That's been in vogue recently. With players negotiating for player options so that if they hit it big, if they dominate, they can opt out at the end of the season, opt out of their deal, and hit free agency whenever they want. They have some semblance of control over their free agency and are more are better positioned to capitalize on any one dominant season. But the downside for teams is, hey, if this guy sucks, if this guy signs a an option-laden deal and then sucks, well, he's probably not going to opt out of his deal because nobody is going to turn down $22.6 and $24.6 million when you suck to say, well, no, you know what, guys, it's not really fair. Either I'm going to opt out and then we can renegotiate or I'm going to opt out and try to go somewhere else. Maybe you can try to get Adam LaRoche to retire. That was a that was a windfall for the White Sox when Adam LaRoche decided, hey, I don't like the way you talk to my son that I force on the team and bring everywhere with me. I'm going to retire to, I don't know, hunt elk and then go travel to Southeast Asia to, quote, try to help sex traffic victims. Quotes there. Because... You know what? If there's any way, if you get caught in a cat house, isn't that the best? Isn't that the best possible description for what you were doing there? Oh no! No 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 no! I wasn't I wasn't trying to have sex with the hookers. I was trying to save them. That's why. Oh, okay. Whatever team acquires him. We'll get back to, to, to Wei Yen Chen. I was going to say Bruce Chen. Ah, God, I hate Bruce Chen. I don't know why. He's just always dominated the White Sox. So whenever I think of Chen, I think of Bruce Chen. So he's not going to opt out. And so if you have to dump, and you're going to have to dump Wei Yen Chen, I mean, there, there's no way that's not happening. Whatever team acquires him will likely be stuck paying those salary figures. And any team taking on that salary or the salary of any other of your bad players to whom you signed large deals, even with a bit of cash help from the Marlins, any team taking on that salary would be right to ask that a decent prospect be included. If not, foundational, cost-controlled players like Christian Yelich. If you're going to say, hey, can you just take on this entire bad deal that we signed this guy to? I'd say, yeah, sure, but I want Christian Yelich too. I will effectively, effectively, I will buy Christian Yelich from you at the cost of paying this exorbitant amount of money to a player who has a 1.43 something whip. Sure, I'd do that if I'm a contending team and I've got boatloads of money, as teams like, say, the Red Sox, the. Mm, who's up there in salary? Cubs, maybe. Sure, yeah, I'll take that. That's what they're going to have to do if they don't trade Stanton. It's quite a predicament for the Marlins, who had the 30th-ranked farm system by baseball baseball prospectus heading into 2017. 30th in the league. Last. 
worst farm system in baseball. Their predicament is this. They can trade Stanton in return for a package of blue chippers from another team and hope to rebuild. And in that move, you dump salary like you want to do, but lose the biggest draw a middling team could hope for in Giancarlo Stanton. Who is going to see the Christian Yelich-led Marlins lose possibly 100 games? Who's going to go see that? Or you don't trade Stanton, but have to dump salary of expensive veterans on bad contracts and have to give up cost-controlled four-war players like Christian Yelich and Marcelo Zuna to get the deals done, virtually ensuring mediocrity for years to come. Because then it's just the Giancarlo Stanton show. Then it's just, yeah, we don't really have a farm system feeding our MLB team, and we don't have Christian Yelich and Marcelo Zuna anymore because we had to send off Edison Volkes and Wei Yen Chen. So come come on down, buy season tickets to see Giancarlo Stanton hit 50 home runs. for. I mean, Giancarlo Stanton would be Joey Votto at that point. Happier than hell to be making $30 million or near $30 million, but never in playoff contention and never even the hope of playoff contention. Never even a glimmer of hope of playoff contention. So for my money, you know me, I'm always the guy, give me the prospects. Trade Stanton, Giancarlo, thank you. You've been a great face of the organization. You've brought people to the ballpark. Thank you so much, but... We need to rebuild. And you've got guys. Let's see, Marcelo Zuna is is only in his first arbitration year. You've bought out Yelich's arbitration years. However, he's cost controlled at 3.5 this year, 7 million, 9.75, 12 and a half, and 14 in 2021. That's for what Yelich gives you, that's pretty damn good. And Ozuna is entering RB year number two with another RB year after that, and maybe you can convince him again to sign a team-friendly deal, although uh, perhaps not after this season. He might be wanting to test free agency. And so that just, again, virtually ensures that you are going to have to rebuild at some point. And it's better to get the rebuild started now. Get it started now. You've got Yelich cost-controlled. And you're going to have to hope that if you can't sign Marcelo Zuna long-term, that in two years when he becomes an unrestricted free agent, you get the first-round draft choice of whichever team signs him, if you cannot. And then build from there. Get your four or five blue chippers now, and then you're going to suck for a season and be picking near the top of the draft. And then by the time Yelich is... 28, right in the thick, hopefully, of his prime, maybe the Marlins will be ready to compete again. So for my money, it's time to trade Giancarlo Stanton, but new Marlins ownership appears to have contingency plans for both trading and not trading the slugger. All right. 
That'll wrap up this episode of the flagship podcast of Call to the Pen. Be sure to visit calltothepen.com every single day for great content from all of our contributors. You can follow me on Twitter at John's Voices and be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a beat. We're on iTunes now, so just go to iTunes and search Call to the Pen podcast. New episodes scheduled for Monday and Wednesday, weather permitting. Enjoy your Labor Day. Thank you for listening. I'll catch you next time. I'm out. Bye.